you will please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and as you're turning there, just want to make mention of the fact that looking forward to Thanksgiving celebration with our church family next Sunday after worship up at Montesano Lodge. Encourage all of you to come, just to be a great time to fellowship and to give thanks to the Lord. And also, after Sunday school, we are having a mission trip meeting, so for those of you interested, even if you've never been on a mission trip before, this would be a great opportunity for you to just learn and just inquire and see if it may be something the Lord might be calling you to. A great chance to partner with one of the missions that we support. I invite you to come to that. Romans chapter 8, I believe it's on page 944 in the Bibles and the chairs in front of you. I'm going to read verses 31 through 39 to the end of the chapter here, but our focus will be verses 31 and 32. This is God's holy, inerrant, and authoritative word to us this morning. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor rulers, nor anything present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, what lofty. What wonderful truths are contained here in this passage. Lord, help us to see them. Help us to believe them. Lord, I pray for all of us here today that may be struggling in whatever way. Father, would you bind these promises on our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could ask God for one thing. If, if God were to grant your, your one wish, one thing that you thought would give you ultimate happiness, one thing that you thought would bring you the greatest satisfaction in life, what would you ask? What would be that one thing? Would it be for financial stability? Would it be for healing? Would it be for safety or comfort? Would it be for more stuff? What is your greatest need that you would like God to give you at your command? Well, depending on how you answer that question, depending on what you're thinking of, really determines what you believe about God. So this morning, I'd like to ask yourself, do you, do you believe that God is, is cruel and he doesn't want to give you anything for your good? Or do you believe that God is unaware, that he's uninvolved, that he doesn't even really know what you need? 
Or do you believe that God is sovereign and loving and that he is orchestrating everything in your life for good? And sometimes that means giving you what you ask for. But more often than not, it means not giving you what you ask for. And that is for your good. The truth is, we all have a low view of God. Ever since sin entered the world, mankind has been in rebellion against God. And one of the chief ways that we have been in rebellion against Him is by by believing that old, old lie that was first whispered in the ear of Eve. When the tempter, Satan, came and said to her, you know, God is not good. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. Because if he did, he would do this. And so our very low view of God means that we too often think that God is is like us. That he should behave like us. That he should act like us. That he should do what we want him to do. But this is where we need to have our minds and our hearts changed. This is where we need to believe and affirm that God is not a man. He is the sovereign, almighty, infinite, eternal, and holy God who does what is good for His glory and His purposes. Too often, we think that He shares His love just like we do. Too often we wrongly think that God shows His grace and mercy just like we do. But the truth is, we often share our love and our grace and our mercy in in portions at specific time and in certain circumstances. Our love has limits. But do you believe that God's love is unlimited Do you believe that God's love is so sovereign, is so purposeful, that he is orchestrating everything in life for your good and his glory? The truth is, we have trouble believing that God's love is unlimited. And again, this has to do with our low view of God. I once read Jerry Bridges give an illustration like this from an old pastor Years and years ago, there was a very wealthy plantation owner who had no heirs to leave his fortunes and leave his plantation to, and so he left $50,000 to his most trusted and worthy servant. This would have been perhaps billions of dollars in our day and age, but this was a long time ago, and so $50,000 to this servant was a lot of money. But the servant had no idea what to do with it. He was not used to, he's not accustomed to such wealth. And so the bank would call him and send for him. You need to come down and claim what is rightfully yours. And time after time, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't come. He had no concept. And so finally, he went down to the bank and the bank president said, this this money, this is all yours. It has all been left to you. And the servant said, do you think that I could... Borrow 50 cents for a sack of cornmeal for my family? You see, we are like that servant. We don't get the extravagant riches and wealth that we have in Christ. We don't comprehend the 
the limitless love of God, we go to him asking for 50 cents and he wants to give us billions in spiritual blessings and riches. As God longs to lavish his love on his children with spiritual riches. And he does this in the most outlandish and extravagant ways that we will see here in just a moment in this passage. So what we need this morning is a changed heart, a changed mind to know the God of the Bible who is bigger, who is greater, who is more loving than anything than we could imagine, that his love is unlimited. It is greater than anything we could come up with. And so Paul begins this last section here in Romans chapter 8 by asking the question in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? What are these things that Paul mentions in verse 31? Well, these things are some of the most glorious and rock-solid truths and promises that we could ever imagine that are given to those who are in Christ Jesus. And really these things that he is referring to goes all the way back to Romans chapter 3. And so we could go through the almost entire book of Romans to see how over and over and over Paul has proved that God's love is extravagant. But let's just mention the ones that are in Romans 8 that we've studied so far. Think about these things, these amazing truths. That those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. That Jesus has in fact set us free from the law of sin and death. That we now have the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. He's the spirit of life and peace. That we are now called children of God. That we now eagerly await a time when we will be renewed into the image of Christ. That our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. And that God surrounds us with his sweet providence in such a way that all things, everything that happens to us, works together for our good. Even the hard bad, evil things. And so what is Paul's point in all this? Where is he going with this argument? Why does he start with these rhetorical questions? And this is where I think it's helpful to remember that Paul was a pastor. He was seeking by God's grace to bring comfort and assurance and even healing to God's people in the church in Rome. He's trying to pastor the flock. And what he is making the case for here is that God knows that we struggle. God knows that we struggle with assurance. That we struggle with our own hearts accusing us. That we struggle with the world's allure to get us to fall into sin. That we struggle with Satan's attacks who seeks to undo our assurance that we have in the gospel. That we struggle even now with sickness, with pain, with death, and with the outright brokenness of our world. And so now Paul wants to address these things with these rhetorical questions. 
I love his brilliance here. I love his pastor's heart that he's using to show us the absolute hope and absolute assurance that we have in the gospel. And so that is what he's going to address here in this final passage. There are five rhetorical questions that he asks in this passage. Five unanswerable questions to demonstrate the rock-solid assurance that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're only going to have time to cover two of these questions. So let's look at the first one. Look there in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Knowing that the God Almighty, the sovereign Lord of the cosmos, that He is for us, this is the ultimate comfort that Christians can have. And perhaps the only thing that some of you need to hear this morning is this simple truth. That if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, God is for you. God is for you. And if he is for you, this means that he is in control of everything. He is in control of all the circumstances of your life. Everything that happens to you, even your final destiny. And what could bring you more comfort than to know that the outcome of your life It's not based on what just happens by chance. We're not leaving it up to the fates or by accident. But your life is in the hands of a loving God who works all things for good. This is very practical theology that we must apply and believe because when we get that awful news that a loved one has died, when we get that terrible word from our superiors that we've lost our job, when we wake up tomorrow morning and we see that the stock market has crashed and our retirement is, is gone, completely wiped out, or that you get that diagnosis and the doctor has that look on his face and you know it's not good. When we feel like everything is working against us, And when we are weak, when we are powerless, this is when God says, I am for you. I am for you, even in all that. But how can we know? How can we be assured that God is for us? Well, since God has foreknown us, Paul said earlier, since he has predestined us and called us and justified and glorified us, he is for us. God is on your side in Christ. Whatever happens to you in the world, we can take comfort in the fact by knowing that God is for us. This knowledge is is humble, yet it's comforting. If you're in Christ and God the Father is for you, he, He loves you from all eternity and into eternity. And this fact is worthy of our praise. It's worthy for us to, be, to think about it, to, to write about it, to sing about it, to, to, for all eternity. To praise God from whom all blessings flow. But if you don't know Jesus this morning, 
if Christ is not your Lord and Savior, then you cannot claim these promises. Because if you don't believe that Jesus is God, then he is not for you. He's, in fact, against you. Paul begins in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against sin and ungodliness. But the good news is you can escape this doom. There is a way of safety. All you have to do is repent. Repent, that means turn away from your sin. Quit trusting in yourself and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved and you can say that God is for me. If God is for us, who can be against us? Second question he asked there in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how we not also along with him graciously give us all things? This question banishes all doubts, does it not? How, how, how could God do this? How can all of our doubts be resolved by this promise? And this is where the scriptures point us straight to the cross. We look straight to Jesus. The questions that we asked earlier on what the one thing would be that we would ask God that he would give us that we thought would bring us the ultimate peace and happiness and security is a question that doesn't even have to be asked now. Why? How could that be? Because God, our Father, has already met our greatest need in Jesus Christ. Our greatest need is salvation. Our greatest need is to be made right with God, for our sins to be atoned for. God has accomplished this by not sparing his own son. By giving him up to death. Even death on a cross. And so this is why the Apostle John proclaims in a couple of places in Scripture. We already read John 3.16 and 17. Those wonderful promises there printed in your bulletin. But also from 1 John chapter 4. He says... If this, in this, is the love of God was manifested among us, that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The God who we are asking all our questions to has already given us his son. God gave him up for us. The extent to which God has shown his great love for his chosen people, that he has shown that they are victorious, is in giving his son. And in giving his son, God has given us everything. Everything. He has given us the greatest thing that we need, how will he not also give us all things? And so Paul points us to the cross. 
The cross of Jesus Christ. It's the continuing, unfailing love and generosity of God. Because Jesus is the best gift of love we could ever be given. It's the best hope of our ultimate happiness that we could ever ask for. And where we fall into trouble, where we get into error, is when bad stuff happens, or when our prayers don't get answered, and then we conclude that God must not love us, or even we might even conclude even worse that God is not good. And so when we get that bad news, when we are going through that suffering, when life gets hard, and we complain and cry out, the problem is that our complaining and that our moaning and that our crying and griping is that we're not trusting that God has our best in mind. And when we do that, when we don't hold on to this rock-solid promise, what we are doing is devaluing Christ. We're devaluing the greatest gift that God could ever give in His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, if this is you, and when this is you, and when this is me, we need to repent right now and ask God to change us. Repent that we have not loved Jesus above everything else. We have, in fact, put other gods before us. Because the truth is, God has already met our greatest need. How will he not also meet our other needs? And that's what he says there. What are all these things, these all things that God will give us since he's already given us his son? They are the assurance of salvation, along with all the practical things that God does to bless us in our lives. And so that's why Paul says, if God has met your greatest need, of course, of course he will meet all your other needs. If God has planned the location of all the stars in the sky, if he has secured your soul for eternity by his wonderful plan of salvation, will he not also provide all of your other needs? And this is the truth that is to make us cross-eyed, to, to look to the cross and see it as central that God did not spare his own son for you. Again, he's met your greatest need already. It was for our sake that God did not give him up. Octavius Winslow, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, once asked this question, who was it that killed Jesus? Who was it that killed Jesus? He said, it wasn't Judas out of greed. It wasn't the Jews out of envy. It was his father out of love. The father killed him. It was the father who put him to death. That is an astounding truth. That is a scandalous truth. That is a truth that we can hold on to forever. Derek Thomas responds by saying this, when we, when we look at the cross 
It almost seems as though the father loves us more than he loves his own son. That cannot be true, of course. But it looks like that. He loves us that much. No greater evidence of the Father's love for us is imaginable or necessary. God, who did not spare his own son, but he willingly gave him over to death to demonstrate his great love for us, how will he not also, how can he not also graciously give us all things, which includes hope in our suffering? Our daily bread that we so desperately need. Assurance of salvation. Hope for tomorrow. Everything. Everything. God has it under control. Brothers and sisters, if this promise is new to you this morning, hold on to it for dear life. I know that it's one that I have held on to for many, many years. It is one of the most glorious promises in all of Scripture. That if he didn't spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? And so that is why before us this morning is a remembrance. A table of remembrance. A a reminder of what God has done and what he will continue to do. This table demonstrates what God has done, that he did not spare his own son. That Jesus was delivered over to death for our sin, for our salvation. And this table screams of the love of God for us. It reminds us that God is for us. It reminds us that God has met our greatest need by not sparing his own son. And so come. Be reminded, if God is for you, who can be against you? God gave his own son. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you, by the power of your spirit, help us to believe and apply these wonderful truths and promises. Father, I pray that they would be believed and applied to the specific needs of every brother and sister here in this congregation. Whatever need and whatever way there is, Father, would you remind us all that Jesus loves us. This we know. The Bible tells us so. We pray it in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in preparation for the supper.
Brothers and sisters, let us profess the one true faith found here in the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. As we come to the table, hear these words of institution from Matthew chapter 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I love these, these truths, these promises that we're studying in Romans chapter 8, and, and especially these questions here at the end, because these questions are the, are the ones that we are all asking, the, the ones that we're all struggling with. Assurance of salvation, assuring, assurance that God is going to provide, that, that He's going to do what He says He's going to do, that He can, that he can meet our needs. And so these promises are are very pastoral and very assuring to us because they show us that God is for us because he knows that we struggle. He he knows that we're weak. He knows that we're finite. He he knows that we need comfort and assurance. And one of the ways that he has met that need, and one of the ways that he comes lovingly and tenderly to us to show us that he is for us is by the meal that is before us. A very a tangible thing that appeals to our senses, our, our sight, our, our taste, our, our hearing, our, our touching. All of these things that it's smelling, all of these things that we, we need to, to assure us. And so that's why this table screams the gospel this morning, that God is for us. He didn't even spare his own son. So we eat and we drink to remember, to remember. And so this morning, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, taste that the Lord is good. Eat this meal, drink this cup. But if you're not there yet, don't don't leave, but repent. Repent from from trusting in yourself. Repent of your sin and And come without money, without anything, to Jesus Christ and buy. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you this morning that you have tangibly met a need for us. A great reminder of your covenant love. And so we ask now that you would take these common elements and that you would use them for your holy purposes. To strengthen and nourish us spiritually. We pray in Jesus' name.